0: Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. This week on the Sunday debate, we are hearing from a very exciting event which was recorded in October in partnership with History Hit. Four leading British historians took us on a journey from Alfred the Great to Queen Victoria and asking the question, who was England's greatest ever monarch? Each of the kings and queens competing for the title have left a distinctive stamp on their era, but who did the most to shape the nation and the lives of its people? Who was the most intelligent? Who the bravest? Who the most loved? This lively event threw some light on the monarchy as an institution, exploring how it survived its challenges throughout history. For premium subscribers to Intelligence Squared, you can also access an extended audience Q&A with our panel, including historians Tom Holland and Helen Castor, plus more premium goodness, Bright Sparks, our look at some of the creative ideas that make our expert guests tick. That's all ready to dig into once the podcast is up. But now, back to today. Here's our host, Snow. Dan Snow
2: Thank you very much everyone. We are talk about who was the greatest English monarch. We could this week be talking about who was the worst British Prime Minister. <laughs> it's uh, some lively competition. We might not need any historians for that though. Um, we have got, it's a big week. It's a big week for, uh, for the English and British monarchy. Uh, it's not necessarily a great week for them. It was the Battle of Yorktown this week in 1781 which saw the American colonies win their decisive victory that took those misguided fellow Britons on a separate path, path towards republicanism and global hegemony. Poor them, uh, it was the end of the Hundred Years' War today when the French crown kicked the English out of Gascony. That's a war that we tend to remember the battles, but not the outcome of that particular war. Uh, King John died this week, having lost the crown jewels in the wash <laughs> just previously. He caught, he caught dysentery in Norfolk. I don't know why that's funny. And then he crossed the wash... Lost the crown jewels, which are there to this day, and, and then died in Newark Castle, which allows me to use one of my favourite lines. But luckily, his dysentery saved his dynasty. <laughs> That's very generous. Um, because obviously, his, he was to- totally useless, but the Plantagenets were saved by the fact that nobles preferred a, a child on the throne, young Henry III. Battle of Edgehill uh, this week in 1642. Um, Charles I's attempt to just quickly nip that rebellion in the bud. Uh, didn't work out, and what followed was the greatest per capita, most destructive war in, in modern English or reasonably modern English history. And in 1016, Edmund Ironside, my, one of my favourite royal cognomens, uh, was defeated by Canute at the Battle of Assendun. So it's a bad it's a bad week for the monarchs. And actually, one of it's one of not a great week for one of your one of our monarchs here, Jane. She was given a little gift, Queen Victoria, this week after the Summer Palace in Beijing was comprehensively destroyed and looted by her soldiers, she was given a little Pekingese dog, which she called Luti, which you'll be familiar with. Um, uh, we're, gonna have, we're gonna hear from all our wonderful historians, then we're gonna vote, we're gonna vote before, we're gonna vote afterwards, we're gonna have questions from you guys, it's gonna be brilliant. But to start us off, first of all, let's be honest. Greatest monarch, how do you compare Queen Victoria with King Henry? I'll let these guys define it. We may be thinking about consequential. We do not mean people that we admire and want to go for a beer with and we wish they were here today exercising constitutional monarchy over us, obviously. Um, so that is, and we are comparing monarchs from very, very different periods. We have monarchs who who reigned in a constitutional way, monarchs who inspired, monarchs who were a focus of national life, and monarchs who reigned with their sword in the hand and their arse in the saddle. So very, very apples and pears, so it's up to you to decide which one is the greatest. We've got nine minutes each. We're going to start. We're going to start with a great friend of mine. A incredibly successful, much to my annoyance, podcaster, uh, award-winning historian, it's best-selling, everything unbelievable. He's written biographies of various members of Alfred's family, actually. His grandson Athelstan, who I noticed on Twitter, Tom thought he might be talking about, but um, it's very nice of you to do, Alfred. King of the West Saxons, progenitor of our modern royal family. And he's also written a book on Alfred's wonderful daughter, Athelflad, who I'm not going to pronounce properly, the May- lady of Mercia. But anyway, here to wow us about Alfred is Tom Holland.
3: Thanks very much Dan. I had no idea it had been such a terrible week for the British monarchy and obviously it's a, it's a terrible few weeks for, for Britain generally. So I want to cheer you up by taking you back to a, a much more kind of patriotic epic and the hero of this epic uh, is the the only one of the four monarchs that we're talking about tonight, who is actually called The Great. And since we are debating who the greatest is, the fact that Alfred is called The Great, I think, provides us with a fairly hefty clue. Um, and he has been known as The Great for a long time. He he began to be called The Great about 300, 400 years after his death. Uh, it was in the 16th century that that name really became cemented. And to this day, he it is how he is commonly known. So, Why is he known as the Great? Well, obviously not because of his cooking abilities. I would absolutely accept that the man who burnt the cakes is probably the one of all our kings who is least likely to win the Great British Bake Off. However, fortunately, this is not the standards by which we are judging greatness tonight. I think that Alfred has been seen as great and that he has been called the Great for as long as he has been because he stands at the very head of the story of the English monarchy. I think there are fundamentally two reasons why Alfred's greatness is something that has become part of the fabric of our national folklore. The first is that he saved the English, the Angles, the Saxons, whatever we want to call them, from a degree of ruin that was more total, potentially, than any other that has threatened... The English over the long course of their history. And then having done that, he went further. Having saved the English in war, he then embarked on the heroic task of giving them the benefits of peace. And by doing so, he made England itself possible. He forged what would become the unitary state of England. I think more than any other single figure in our history, He serves as the founding father of England. So his greatness exists in the context of a calamity that in the 9th century, when Alfred was born and ruled, threatened to overwhelm all the kingdoms of England. In the 9th century, there there was no unitary kingdom of England. There were four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. There was Northumbria, there was East Anglia, there was Mercia, and there was Alfred's own kingdom of Wessex. And over the course of Alfred's lifetime, three of those four kingdoms were brought crashing down in ruin. Only Wessex survived. And the cost that that imposed on the kings of Wessex is measured by the fact that Alfred was the fifth of five sons, and he came to the throne at the age of 23 after his four brothers had been reduced to death by the strain and struggle of fighting off the heathen invaders, who were, of course, the Vikings. And for the first seven years of Alfred's reign, he likewise, it was a constant perpetual grind. And then on or around Twelfth Night, 878, the great moment of crisis in his life in Anglo-Saxon England, and I would say in the entire history of an English-speaking Britain, came. Uh, Alfred was ambushed at Chippenham by the highly treacherous Vikings. He had no option but to flee. And by his survival the future of England hung by a thread. Had had Alfred died that night, we would probably not be speaking the kind of English that we do. We'd probably be speaking of a variant of of Danish or Norwegian. Um, The very future of England as a, a Christian country hung absolutely in the balance. Alfred made his escape. He got to the marshes of Athelney in the Somerset Levels. This is where he, uh, he, he, he failed to look after the cakes adequately. Um, but more importantly, he was able to issue a summons to the various people of Wessex to join him to take the fight to the Vikings. And in the Battle of Eddington, a few months after the debacle at, uh, on, on Twelfth Night, he won a great victory at Eddington was able to impose peace terms on the Vikings at the point of a sword. And although he didn't finish the Viking threat, Eddington proved to have been sufficiently decisive that he was able to have time to turn to his other great tasks, which was to fashion and shape a kingdom that would not just be a kingdom at war, but a kingdom that could enjoy the prospects of peace. Now... We will be hearing about Victoria, who reigned over Britain, that it's in the Industrial Revolution, it's 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 uh, it's imperial heyday, but it was Alfred in person. Victoria was 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 a constitutional monarch. It was Alfred in person who set about the great process of constructing urbanism. He founded burrs principally as defensive structures, but these burrs in due course, became great centres of prosperity, markets. Um, Some were Roman establishments like uh, Winchester or London, others like Oxford, founded from scratch. And this tradition of urbanism would, in due course, enable England under Alfred's heirs to become the most precociously wealthy country in Western Europe. And that was really, uh, you know, more than any other person, it was Alfred who set that process in train. But more than that, Alfred was... A great patron of learning, he himself struggled to uh, to read, struggled to learn Latin, but he wanted to do it because he saw this as a way for the English to reclaim their great traditions of learning. We'll be hearing about Henry VIII. Henry VIII's great achievement was to close monasteries down. Alfred's was to resurrect them. When everything was ransacked and burned, he wrote, "This was the time of terror." Alfred's goal was to see learning restored because he believed and understood that war was fine, a prosperous economy was fine, but above all, it was in learning that the English people would most truly fulfill themselves. And there were two great documents for which Alfred was responsible that would have an enduring impact. One of these was um, his own translation into English of uh, Bede's history of the Angli, whom Alfred calls the Anglekin. And even though he was a Saxon, he he picked on this name and ensured in due course that Anglekin English would become the name that is given to the people who live in this country. But he also forged and commissioned a great document called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which again, in turn, written up, would enable the English to have a sense of themselves as a unitary people. And under Alfred's son, his daughter, and then his grandson Athelstan, who would become the, the, the first king of the unitary state of England, this, this idea of a single people, prosperous, safe, protected from invasion, learned, a kingdom so precocious that it would in due course attract the predatory instincts of Canute, the only other king in in, in English history to be called the Great, and then, of course, William the Conqueror. And the Norman kings would would establish the line of kings that, that, that is generally best known. But it was Alfred who forged that line of kings, and it was Alfred who forged England, and it was Alfred, I think, who truly deserves his title of Great, If any monarch in English history was great, Alfred was great. And I commend that greatness to you all tonight. Thank you.
2: Okay, I completely screwed up. We should have voted before we heard that. So just imagine you haven't heard that. (laughs) Don't let that put you off. <laughs> Don't be unfair on Alfred, but you're meant, you can vote. There are instructions, apparently, up there as to how you vote. Um, so, yeah, get voting. And as I say, we're going to vote at the end, having heard them all. Now, you have admittedly had one of them. And I'm not just doing this because Tom's a great mate. <laughs> well, no, you're right. It makes you look worse if everyone's moved by that. And then it, Yeah, because the swing, we need swing here, as my dad would say. The swing between the pre- and post-votes is what counts, everybody. So uh, imagine you haven't heard that. Next up, next up, we have got, we scooch forward. Great debate in the Intelligence Square offices about whether we included some Plantagenets in there. I was sad not to have uh, Henry the Second, but and uh, a few of the others, but we scooch all the way forward to the to the big man himself, Henry VIII. We have got Tracy Borman, a suitably a giant, a suitably gigantic historian, uh, in in stature. Hang on, that's going to go wrong in some ways. Um, she is also, a, I keep saying this, best-selling author, historian, and broadcaster. She, like everyone on this panel, is utterly brilliant. Don't worry, we only brought you the best. And she's just written a wonderful book called Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him. Go for it, Tracy. Right. Get in there. Thank you. And get voting,
1: folks. Thanks very much, Dan. Great pleasure to be here this evening. And I'd like to just say, before I go on to argue the case for Henry VIII, that I truly believe he was our greatest monarch. And my choice has nothing to do with the fact that Helen had already bagged Elizabeth <laughs> <the> I. <first>. LAUGHTER We've got that out of the way, let me tell you, about the greatest king in history, the greatest monarch in history. For the future, the whole world will talk of him, said a Venetian ambassador in the year of Henry's accession, 1509. Another Italian declared that the new king excelled all who wore a crown. To his contemporaries, Henry was a great man and a great king, a legend, if you like, in his own lifetime. Even though modern historians are a much more cynical bunch, we all agree that Tudor England's most famous monarch left behind an extraordinary legacy, namely modern Britain. He changed the heart, mind and face of the country more than anyone or anything else between the Norman conquest and the Industrial revolution. So let's start with the church. Sparked by a desire to set his aside his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and Marianne Boleyn, Henry separated England from the rest of Europe. Thank goodness that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. Um, rejected papal authority and made himself supreme head of a new church of England. He steered his realm through the religious revolution that followed in its wake, dissolving the monasteries, which Tom had fallen into decline anyway. And author the translation of the Bible into English. Henry was the best talent spotter in history, devoid of the usual snobbery that made monarchs select their advisors from the aristocracy. He broke with centuries of tradition by appointing his most powerful officials on merit alone. Thomas Wolsey the butcher's boy from Ipswich, overhauled the machinery of state, centralized government, and laid the foundations for modern financial bureaucracy. Likewise, Thomas Cromwell, who realized the power of Parliament as he drove through the Reformation but enough of the serious stuff and on to the bling. Henry created the most magnificent court in English history, a true Renaissance monarch. He was a great patron of the arts, spearheaded a cultural revolution in England, and it was during his reign, not Elizabeth's, that uh, the great art form of the sonnet was created. Eat your heart out, Shakespeare. He was the greatest builder of palaces that the monarchy has ever seen, expanding its property portfolio by no fewer than 60 sumptuous new palaces, including Nonsuch and my place of work, Hampton Court. Henry was far more than just a patron of architecture and learning, though, he was nothing short of of a genius himself, expert linguist, humanist, theologian, composer, astronomer, and tennis player. He concocted medicines, including a cure for the plague, designed weapons, and was a world-class jouster. Henry was a warrior king in the mould of his illustrious medieval ancestors. He revived England's claim to the throne of France and commissioned a fleet of warships that were the basis of Britain's future of the seas and of the Royal Navy. Without it, his daughter Elizabeth would have been utterly vanquished by the Armada in 1588. Perhaps Henry's greatest achievement, though, was to transform the power of the monarchy and forge a new sense of national identity. Now, the 1533 Act, in restraint of appeals, proudly declared, this realm of England is an empire, governed by one supreme head and king. Henry ended centuries of Welsh rebellion and created a single united kingdom of England and Wales. Well... That's about five minutes worth, and I haven't even got on to the wives. Uh, So let's talk a bit about them. His marital history, let's face it, put the monarchy on the map. Would we still be talking about the Tudors if Henry hadn't had the foresight, energy, and blind optimism to marry six times? Out of the goodness of his heart, he gave six women the dazzling opportunity to be Queen of England. Was it his fault that so many? Many of them fell short by about a head. Um, So dedicated was he to strengthening the precarious throne that his father had bequeathed him, that he was prepared to suffer the turmoil and heartbreak of two annulments, two beheadings, and a natural death. How many other monarchs can say the same? Too often, Henry has been portrayed as a tyrannical monster. Nothing could be further from the truth, ladies and gentlemen. He went to the trouble of ordering an expert swordsman from Calais to save Anne Boleyn, the terrors of the axe. He sent her his second best doctor when she fell ill with the sweating sickness. Nothing was too good for Anne Boleyn. And what thanks did he get being cheated on with five men, including his own brother-in-law, In all seriousness, Henry did have a softer side. He cherished personal mementos of his late brother, Arthur, who died at the age of just 15. He was found weeping at the death of his former right-hand man, Wolsey. And when he watched his magnificent flagship, the Mary Rose, sink in the Solent in July, 1545, he suppressed his own anguish by comforting the wife of the captain, George Carew, who went down with the ship. That's true, actually. (laughs) Here was a king to be reckoned with, though. A king who knew his own mind and had a clarity of vision that none could equal. As Thomas Cromwell ruefully admitted, the king, my master, is a great king but very fond of having things his own way. Through Henry's sheer strength of will, he averted religious and dynastic wars, brought the nobility to heel, suppressed rebellion and retained peace for almost 40 years, firmly establishing what was a fledgling dynasty to be one of the most powerful and popular royal houses in history. Not once in his reign did he flinch from his royal duty. If only the same could be said of all the monarchs represented here this evening. Uh, Victoria. (laughs) Henry began his reign in a medieval kingdom. He ended it in a modern state. It's been said that we're still living in the England of Henry VIII. Just think what we wouldn't have without him. No Church of England, no Royal Navy, no Hampton Court, and therefore nowhere for me to work. No modern government or prime minister's. Could have taken that one out of my argument, I think. Um, No divorce lawyers and no Sixth Musical. And so I leave you with the words of one of Henry's contemporaries I know not where in all the histories I have read to find one king equal to him. Thank you very much.
2: Well done. And now to Henry's daughter, we've got Elizabeth I here, daughter of Anne Boleyn and Henry, by a wonderful award-winning best-selling cetera, historian. This time, uh, Helen Castor is my, my favorite historian. She's written an actual biography of Elizabeth I, a study in security. Go for it.
0: Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, Let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, And to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on stage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
4: to work out the criteria that we might use to judge the greatest English monarch, it might seem counterintuitive to turn to the current Duchess of Sussex, but I'm going to do it anyway. In that famous pre-Megxit interview, she said, it's not enough just to survive something, right? You've got to thrive. You've got to feel happy. I never thought this would be easy, but I thought it would be fair. And that got me thinking, because in fact, of course, survival is the fundamental point. For the monarch, for the monarchy, for the kingdom. Not the emotional survival that Meghan is talking about, but literal survival. The survival of a nation, a people, and a throne. But she is right that to qualify for greatness, surely we do also need to think about thriving, or at the very least, not leaving the kingdom in a worse position than when the monarch started. I want to argue that Elizabeth stakes her claim in both ways. In the 45 years of her rule, England survived and it thrived. And that wasn't a coincidence. And at the same time, there were sacrifices to be made to make sure that happened. Elizabeth herself discovered to her cost that being a reigning queen in the 16th century was not easy. It was not fair in any way, and it did not make her happy. The fundamental starting point is that neither Elizabeth herself nor her country were ever safe. In Elizabeth's case, that danger started when she was two and a half years old, when her father killed her mother and declared her a bastard. From then on, Elizabeth knew she had only herself to rely on, and when at last she came to the throne in 1558 at the age of 25, that insecurity was replicated for her country, and largely for the same reasons. Thanks to Henry VIII's determination always to have his cake and eat it, England now had dangerous whiplash from a Protestant Reformation followed by a Catholic Counter-Reformation all in the space of a decade. So what qualities did Elizabeth bring to the task, and what did she do? In seven minutes, I can give you the headlines. First of all, there's her intellect. She had a very, very sharp mind, from her command of languages as a child to her translations of philosophy in later life, like her forebear, Alfred. She tackled Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy in 1593. But the key thing here is the way in which she applied her intelligence, her capacity to see what was difficult and why, and her willingness to live with uncertainty. In religion, the question of her age into which Henry VIII had thrown his very own hand grenade, that meant finding her own path not in the sense of her father, who had put together the bits he liked best to cause chaos for the future while raiding church coffers. What Elizabeth did was to find the broadest possible ecclesiastical umbrella under which the greatest number of her subjects could loyally stand. She was Protestant. She had to be. She'd been born as the physical embodiment of the break from Rome. But she wanted as much continuity as possible in the outward forms of ritual, combined with a vital ambiguity in the central doctrine of the Eucharist. That was her settlement of 1559, a middle path that nobody else in government supported apart from her. She and it were buffeted from both sides in the decades that followed, and tensions ratcheted up with very unhappy effects as the years went on. But all the way through, she held her ground as a place for as many as possible of her subjects to stand with her. Her ground was not to make windows into men's hearts and secret thoughts, as Francis Bacon later said. And in standing on it, she was brave. She always had been brave. You don't get through a childhood like hers without being brave. But becoming queen gave her no more security, especially after she was excommunicated in 1570. Every Catholic in England and across Europe was given enthusiastic permission to kill her. There were repeated assassination plots. We know they didn't work, but she didn't. But in 1581... This is her response to the Scottish ambassador. I am more afraid of making a fault in my Latin than of the kings of Spain, France, Scotland, the whole House of Guise and all their confederates. I have the heart of a man, not of a woman, and I am not afraid of anything. In anyone else, that would sound like protesting far too much, but in Elizabeth's case, the courage was real, as was its effect. Both her charisma as a leader and the loyalty she inspired are obvious in 1588 and the defeat of the Armada. But the heart of a man, the heart and stomach of a king, brings us to another remarkable facet of her rule. Whatever a male monarch did, she, like Ginger Rogers, did it backwards and in heels. (laughs) Monarchy, power, was assumed to be male, and her position was therefore wholly unnatural. Her enemies called her a whore and a Jezebel and worse. Her own ministers agreed fundamentally with John Knox that government was not women's work, because of course, women were weak in every possible way, intellectually, morally, and physically. In 1560, even her devoted chief minister, William Cecil, wanted to keep a confidential report from Paris out of her hands, being too much, he said, for a woman's knowledge. So Elizabeth's authority as a monarch always had to be actively asserted from moment to moment, could never be assumed. And that circumstance led directly to her experience of life being not only not fair, but also not happy. She couldn't have the marriage and family that kings took for granted as their duty and their right, because if Elizabeth took a husband, would that make him the king? Man is the head of woman, St Paul tells us after all. And in looking at her sister Mary and her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, Elizabeth didn't have very encouraging examples of what might happen when a queen shared her throne. And also, quite apart from the psychological effects of what had happened to her mother, she had to consider the dangers of childbirth, which might easily leave England without either a queen or an heir. She'd seen far too much of that among her stepmothers in the cases of Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr. The result was that hers was a lonely life. She had her personal favourites, but she could never let them get too close, and she couldn't give England an heir, at least not in the conventional way. But in fact... I want to argue that she did. By refusing ever to name an heir, she kept the men around her in a state of perpetual uncertainty about the future. They didn't like it. She might well have pointed out what a luxury it is to feel you don't have to put up with things you don't like. But in the end, that uncertainty produced a situation where her last chief minister, William Cecil's son, Robert, was secretly negotiating with her godson and cousin James VI of Scotland to bring about a smooth handover of power, which was exactly and remarkably what happened when she died. James's accession to the throne brought together England and Scotland under one monarch, closing 300 years of conflict between neighbours and rivals. And if you think Elizabeth didn't know what was going on behind her back, I have a bridge to sell you. So what gets called Elizabeth's combination of bossiness and procrastination? I'd invite you to think which other more complimentary words might get used if she'd been a man. I would call judgment. Her judgment was extraordinary. She could see how best to attempt to keep herself and England safe on the stormiest seas. She endured a lot. She gave up a lot to do it. And she knew the value, the talent, the worth in the people she encountered. She was a fantastic judge of ability and character, and unlike her father, she didn't kill the people who served her. I want to leave you with what Elizabeth told William Cecil she wanted from the people who served her in government in the very first days of her reign. This judgment I have of you, that you will not be corrupted with any manner of gift, and that you will be faithful to the state, and that without respect of my private will, you will give me that counsel that you think best. Integrity duty, trust. Nothing's ever simple, but those, I hope we can all agree, especially today, those are the values on which to build a government and a nation. Thank you.
2: I thought you were running for office there at the end. That was very <laughs> exciting. I wish you would. Uh, righty-ho. Next up. This is very exciting. We've got another very, very. Uh, you've, Jane has written a biography of Queen Victoria, Queen Empress, Matriarch, the very brilliant Jane Ridley, everyone.
5: Um. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to argue, obviously, that Queen Victoria most definitely uh, was the greatest monarch and deserves to win this competition. But I do have to (coughs) accept that there were a few points about Queen Victoria at first that might make us feel she was not really in the running. Queen Victoria was not beautiful, unlike, let's say, Elizabeth I. She didn't have a great physical character. She didn't have much charisma. She was 4 foot 11 inches high, with a tendency to put on weight. Various people have discovered various parts of her underwear, which are sort of scattered around the country, it seems. Uh, LAUGHTER And we know, as a historical fact, that when she was 60, her knickers had a 45-inch waistband. Uh, With somebody who's only 4 foot 11, that's quite a (laughs) sort of square. (laughs) (laughs) And if you compare her, as I say, with Elizabeth I or Henry VIII, you can't say that she had the physical charisma that was so helpful to those Tudor monarchs. However, like Elizabeth I, Victoria was bullied and abused, though probably not as badly, as a child. At Kensington Palace, not then under the able supervision of Tracy, <laughs> Queen Victoria um, suffered badly from the discipline imposed by her mother, the Duchess of Kent, and from her mother's accomplice, uh, her controller, Sir John Conroy. Um, and these two together, when the Queen was small, tried to persuade her to, to sign all sorts of documents which would have transferred power to them when she became queen. And to Queen Victoria's credit, uh, she refused to sign any of these documents, and um, she emerged from this traumatic childhood um, strengthened rather than totally victim to post-traumatic stress syndrome. Queen Victoria then is working as reigning in a political world which is completely male dominated. She uh, you know all the politicians that surround her are men. Many of them have got first class degrees from Oxford and Cambridge, intellectually arrogant. And I think one of the most important claims of Queen Victoria to be voted the greatest monarch is that she as a b- badly educated woman is actually able to survive and thrive in a male dominated world And I think the reason for that was that she had this vein of steel, which people commented on. She might seem hysterical. She might seem, you know, not terribly impressive. But when push came to shove, you couldn't beat the Queen. She was really tough. And yet, paradoxically, in spite of all this, uh, she was a very strong opponent of giving the right to vote to women, which she thought was really not appropriate, and that the feminists were very revolting women. Now, I'm going to argue that one of Queen Victoria's greatest claims to greatness comes from from the period in which she's she's ruling. Because this was a period in British history, the 19th century, when there is a fundamental political shift taking place. And this is the shift that Victoria navigates so skillfully, is the move from a monarch actually ruling, making the decisions, an executive monarch, to a, what we call a dignified monarch, or we hope dignified, a monarch who is ornamental, ceremonial, and the focus for national unity. And this shift was forced on Queen Victoria by the growing democracy, um, the growing—the shift of power to Parliament. So, what's happening um, is that Victoria is becoming weaker and weaker in political terms. And so, the big challenge for her is to develop some alternative view of monarchy, some alternative sort of system of monarchy, to find something else that the monarchy stands for, rather than just hiring and firing politicians, which had been the case before. This is a crucial shift, and it is the big challenge of Victoria's reign. The paradox about Queen Victoria is that um, although she actually survives this shift, she's often quite sort of—she doesn't sort of approve of it at all. She was very partisan, and she was particularly furious with Gladstone, the liberal prime minister, and she complained that he was a half-mad firebrand and that he lectured her as if she was a political meeting. She far preferred Disraeli, and she didn't try to hide the fact that she was on Disraeli's side. You know, Disraeli, on the other hand, is, of course, very Tory, and this completely coincided with Queen Victoria's politics. She loved being called by Disraeli a fairy picture, this sort of rather large lady getting these letters from her prime minister, telling her that she is a, a fairy, a fairy queen. But nevertheless, the important thing about this Queen Victoria is that she is prepared to allow power to move away from the monarchy to Parliament, even though it goes against so much that she is prepared, is you know, that she likes. Now, just quickly, Victoria's marriage is obviously essential to all of this. Her reign splits into two, divided uh, by the death of Prince Albert in 1861. And I think that the first sort of period of the marriage is, for Victoria, very difficult. And we need to accept that she's under huge pressures. She has nine children during this period, and all the time she has Albert trying to take power from her because, you know, he says she can't do these things uh, because she ought to be looking after the children. Victoria certainly resented this power grab from Albert, but she can't say that. And, in fact, what happens instead is that Albert gives Victoria sort of, lessons in how to behave as a good wife. But after Albert's death, we get the really exciting, interesting time of Victoria's reign. The last 40 years of her reign, from 1861 to 1901, she is always—she wears—every day she wears morning clothes, you know, black clothes, black sombre clothes. She refuses to appear in public— She won't do the things she ought to do, like opening Parliament. She is invisible, and there is quite a lot of opposition to her, particularly in 1871, when a Republican pamphlet is published entitled What Does She Do With It?, which claims that, really, she spent all the money from Parliament on her own. You know, she just hoarded it, didn't spend it. But what is really great about Victoria is that in spite of all this unpopularity and all these difficulties, she emerges triumphantly at the end of her reign as incredibly popular as the widow of Windsor much beloved by her people, and also as the grandmother of Europe, the mother of a huge dynasty, married uh, onto her, her children in Europe. So, Victoria, despite terrible problems, does bring it round as monarch to end up as this really popular woman who has managed to redefine the monarchy as being all about the widow of Windsor and the grandmother of her people. Thank you. Perfect.
2: Well, I've done... I've done many of these events, so I've never seen timekeeping like it, so well done. You guys are great. Don't know about these monarchs. Uh, We have the results of the first round of voting from you guys and everybody online. It's very interesting. With a narrow first round victory, would that the same had occurred in Brazil's first round presidential election. We have Elizabeth with 51 percent. Brilliant. Trailing that, we have Alfred with 24. And then a very exciting battle for third place (laughs) between Henry VIII and Victoria. Victoria on 14, Henry VIII on 12. So there we go. But such passionate, passionate advocacy is sure to see those numbers change. So we're going to have a brief discussion up here on the stage. Then we're going to throw the audience some questions so you guys think of what you want to ask these distinguished historians. And then we'll do the final vote in 25 minutes or so, uh, and we can see who walks away with this incredible trophy, uh, figuratively. Let, can I, let's, start, let's start. Let's get it kicked off on the stage here. It's so difficult, isn't it? You've got Alfred. We go, we go from someone who rules with the sword in their hand, Henry VIII in that great tradition too, Tracy, you generously said. Um, to people who, as you say, become the focus of, of, of national tension, of, of the grandmother of, of Europe, of Britain. Is there anything that you guys think you can distill? That, what is the a distillation of greatness that works across all these periods? Is it, is it living a long time? Is it pragmatist? Like, what is there anything that you guys think can make you great? Right across from Alfred to Victoria.
5: I think being a woman.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I think, I think that's. Uh, uh,
5: I mean, I think some of our greatest um, monarchs—Elizabeth I, Victoria—and obviously the late Queen—I think that um, uh, they're better at it in some ways. They're better at, at at sort of healing division rather than rather than increasing it, and they certainly don't usually kill people who work for them. <laughs> so. So, I think gender.
2: Yeah. Okay, interesting. <laughs> but they do kill their cousins. they kill, yeah, they uh, yes. kill their cousins, yeah.
4: they, they do. <laughs> um, Elizabeth tried so hard not to kill Mary, Queen of Scots. The frustration... <laughs> We've all been there. The frustration... Mary's letters would come in, and Elizabeth would write these letters back saying, I detect some confusion in your mind. Elizabeth had spent her entire life being so careful... And Mary was the polar opposite, entitled, spoilt, incoherent, all over the place. Elizabeth tried and tried and tried and tried. In the end, (laughs) was backed into a corner partly by Mary and partly by her own um, uh, officials. But um, I would say, I do think bringing England and Scotland together, I would give Elizabeth an awful lot more credit for that than normally.
3: Uh, Those formative years in France, they can ruin anyone, to be honest. Uh, So, Dan, in answer to your question, is there a kind of standard measure of greatness over the the course of the... uh, the centuries, and indeed, the millennium. I, I, I mean, I think you have to measure a monarch by the standards of the age into which he or she is born. You can't blame Queen Victoria for not invading France. You can't blame, uh, I don't know, Henry II for not giving a good Christmas message. Um, <laughs> and I would, I would actually say that by that measure, the, the greatest monarch of England, I would say, is the late Queen Elizabeth II. Because I I think far more, (laughs) far more than uh, than Victoria, she has served as an absolute model of a constitutional monarch. But I still think that uh, if we're talking about English monarchs, Alfred absolutely walks it because um, the requirement on him was to be a, a great war leader, to defeat his enemies. He did that. But he then went the extra mile. And he kind of introduced standards that would not have been obvious to his subjects, setting up towns, um, serving as a patron of learning. These were not the kind of the traditional attributes of a king of his age. But he, by pushing them, set a template that future generations, for future generations, would provide the absolute model of what it was to be a great monarch.
2: Uh, On on that point, the only thing Tom and... and well, the Victorian Alfred teams, their legacy is quite impressive. I'm a bit worried about Elizabeth Marle Deluge. Oh, I wouldn't. Sixteenth uh, uh, century wasn't a uh, seventeenth century wasn't a brilliant time. Y-
4: yeah, I don't think that's her fault. Okay. Though, um, what I would point to is um, the extent to which she avoided religious war. Religious war was tearing Europe apart in the second half of the sixteenth century, and. As I said—sorry, Tracy—Henry VIII had chosen happily to lob a grenade into the (laughs) middle of England in a way that he absolutely didn't have to. Elizabeth did an extraordinary job of containing religious conflict, trying to find ground on which as many of her subjects as possible could stand, unifying the English under her rule, and her rule being as broad a church as you could find in 16th-century Europe, really don 't think you can blame her for Charles first there's more grenades going on there. She gave them a lot to work with, and um they messed it up she She'd really set up a nice
1: a nice pitch for them i'd say I, I would like to say as well i mean I, I find myself agreeing which i shouldn't be doing <laughs> um, it, is that there is a common factor in all of our monarchs and and that's a really interesting theme, actually, in the whole history of the monarchy. As someone who's just written a book about the monarchy, available in all good bookshops, um, <laughs> called Crown and Scepter, um, I can tell you that one of the most interesting themes is that often those who do the best job of uh, being monarch are those who were not supposed to be monarch at all. Yeah. Um, and that was the case. Um, you know, Alfred, many older brothers. Henry, he had one al- older brother not supposed to come to the throne. Elizabeth just the sort of youngest daughter, so even worse than then Victoria, you know, just, just the daughter of George III's fourth son. So that unites them all. And I think there might be something there about perhaps lack of a sense of entitlement. They work harder for it. But I think, actually, just going back to Tom's original point about Elizabeth II, I think just, should we all just... i would be willing to sacrifice my victory this <laughs> evening by all just
3: agreeing to vote for Elizabeth II. Come on. The um, MB- oh, Honestly, Tracy. what's going on around here? The, o- the OBEs are in the post. Tracy, <laughs> Tracy, whenever, whenever the name Elizabeth... You mention the name Elizabeth, your voice soars with rapture. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Tracy likes rotund,
2: charismatic, mendacious, personally corrupt womenizers with a problem with the truth.
0: I mean, what can I <laughs> but she doesn't, Dad.
3: Yeah. Really. She has a bag with a picture of Elizabeth I, I do right actually. here. I do. I. Do.
0: I, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh.
2: Um, but Henry you've, you've done well for Henry But he has It's I mean I, the Royal Navy Point's a big one Obviously yep. You had me at Royal well, Navy
3: Except Dan of course In the Victorian period The father yes, of the Royal Navy was, uh, was Alfred Details
4: Details Details yeah, yeah.
3: yeah Those Victorians
4: I, I'd also put in a plug For Elizabeth on that front But you know I mean this, this is the problem Isn't it When we're dealing with Centuries and centuries and centuries, there can be many fathers of the Royal Navy, and there can be many founders of the nation from (laughs) England to the United Kingdom and all points in between, and who knows where we're going with that. Um, (laughs) So, as Tom says, it's what you do with what you're presented with, I I would suggest. I
3: I don't think any of them would the father of the Royal Navy. I I, I think, ironically, (laughs) the father of the Navy, and it's not at this point the royal, would be Oliver Cromwell, who, um, I have to say, I'm rather sad not to see... (laughs) <laughs> up here, I think it would a very <laughs> good.
2: Uh, I thought you'd say, that, I, I thought you'd say Philip of Spain there. That would have been the really left. <laughs> yes, field that point. would be <laughs> a controversial one. <laughs> um, but I think it's Victoria, the development of this modern. I, I think I was very struck by your point about flexibility there is that over the course of her reign, she begins by bidding prime minister as much as her grandfather, George III, had done, often quite unsuccessfully. And by the end, it's something very, very different indeed. And is that coming from her or is that events being forced upon her, do you think? Uh,
5: It's events being forced upon her. It's coming from her a bit. It's also her private secretary, Henry Punsonby, is really important in persuading her to sort of, you know, what would happen would be she would say, I'm absolutely not going to make Gladstone prime minister and storm out of the room. Punsonby would then um, sort of leave her. And, know that by the morning she 'd have changed her mind completely because she knew what was right she just didn 't like it, and she did it, so she had this sense of a difference between her own political views and her duty as monarch, and that's, that, that distinction has become more and more important for, for any monarch to choose the first perhaps the first monarch to need to be like that because she 'd lost power but obviously in the monarchy today it 's really, really important not to have a party political monarch you've you 've got to let that not the job is, is not being like that
2: and that is. Different. I mean, where do you think Elizabeth? How does Elizabeth Elizabeth sit within that development of the monarchy? Or, or are we are we being a bit too Barack Obama the arc of history running? Uh, is, is it is it is it useful to think about Elizabeth in that context?
4: I think we've got to be careful because the risk is that it it smooths over. You know, we we know where we ended up. They didn't. Things could have been so different if Mary Tudor had had a child. She could have ended up ruling that that child, whoever they were, could have ended up ruling England or the Netherlands. If Mary Queen of Scots had a child, France and Scotland might now be part of One Nation. Everything is always in play. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or indeed perhaps even this evening. Um, so <laughs> I think we have to look at the job as it was given to the people we're talking about and see how they did it in terms of what was possible for them.
2: If Henry V had washed his goddamn hands more often, we'd be living in one (laughs) joyful nation stretched from Carlisle to Bordeaux. None of us would be in this mess. Um, Brilliant. Good points. I've got questions coming in thick and fast. I hope the audience have got questions here. We've got questions online. Uh, Question uh, about Queen Victoria. This is a very um, worthy question. What recent textbook would you suggest as an ideal source? Well, there's a very
5: good series (laughs) called Penguin Monarchs, and in that you'll find a very good book. (laughs) (laughs) It's called? It's called uh, Queen Victoria.
2: There you go. And it's (laughs) by... Uh, So let everyone go and buy that. Um, Did Henry VIII's dissolution, this is from Matt, did it equate to the tearing down of the medieval welfare state? I thought it was going to be about Brexit, but no, it's about the welfare state
1: did it, Heck. No. no. The monasteries it's were in decline. They were chaotic. corrupt. Yeah. They were leeching from the population. Henry did the only noble thing in getting it. sound a bit like <laughs> sound like Nigel
2: Farage talking about the welfare state. <laughs> right. Of the four monarchs, who was the most intelligent and best educated for their time? I'm not going to ask Tom Holland this question. Uh, which uh, do you th- – who do you think was the m- –
1: Elizabeth. Right. OK. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth. I've stopped you. OK. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Tom,
3: who do you think was the best educated <laughs> for the time? Oh, I think Elizabeth. Um <laughs> 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 but, but I think, I mean, I think the thing about Alfred is that, that, again, he was not expected to be a scholar. And there's something incredibly moving about his efforts to teach himself. You know, he he, he, he has such a brutal, exhausting life. Uh, he, he, he has so much to do. And yet he finds the time to kind of teach himself the rudiments of Latin, teach himself to read. So certainly not the most educated king, but um, the king whose education cost him the most, I think.
2: And I was going to make there a joke about him usurping from his nephew there, but I will not. <laughs> in your view, says Maddy, which is each monarch's best characteristic? Let's start with you, Jim. Uh,
5: sound common sense. Sound Pete common Victorian. sense. Very yeah. good. How to choose just one.
1: I'll go with yeah. courage, but there courage. are a lot more. Brilliant. Well, with his marriages in mind, eternal optimism.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I think his, his utter... Commitment to the security and the happiness of the people that he ruled. Brilliant.
2: Uh, and which piece, oh, here we go, Laura's come in there. Which piece of modern media, film and TV do you think has done your chosen monarch justice? Can you not mention one of your own programmes, please? But uh, <laughs> let's, I presume this is kind of a, a drama thing. So, wh- wh- how do you like to see, which is the best depiction in drama of your monarch?
5: I think actually there was a really good um, film about John Brown and
2: Queen, what was it called? Yeah, that was uh, very good. Yeah, yeah like that, that was one. very good. Yeah. Judy Dent. Very good. Yeah. Dame Judy.
1: Alexander Jackson will always be my queen. Oh, really? Elizabeth mm, R. Yes, yep. yes, yes, yes. I think Henry would say the Jonathan Reese meyers depiction <laughs> <laughs> in Judas. He <laughs> yeah. never aged, his waistline never expanded. I would say uh, probably the Wolf Hall depiction yeah. um, was, I, I thought it was astonishing cast, uh, so
3: Brilliant. that would be my vote. I, I can really only answer The Last Kingdom because that's basically the only, the only <laughs> film and story that Alfred's been in. Um, I think it's a little bit unfair on him, but uh, it has you know, it's the only one, so it's the best. Uh, well, there you go, Laura. Go and watch
2: all those. Go and binge all those. Uh, now we're going to, let's throw it open to the audience, actually, in the room. Hand straight up there. Let's, okay, first you, then you. Here we go.
0: For premium subscribers to Intelligence Squared, you can also access an extended audience Q&A with our panel, including historians Tom Holland and Helen Castor. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.